Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Code Concepts with Pete and Rachel. Today, we have a super special guest um, who I'm, in fact, very delighted to hear from. I've learned something new today. We have Mr. Richardson Red Griswold with Griswold Law. Um, talk about some receivership information today. And this is an interesting topic because I've personally done receiverships and I've actually uh, work with Red as far as receiverships go. It's a great tool and it's not really talked about throughout the nation. It's talked about a lot in California. This is where uh, Red's based out of, but it, it's a tool that's available for a lot of code enforcement officers throughout the nation. And today we're going to discuss a little bit about uh, receiverships and what they are and how they work and uh, Red's role in this whole process. And you know, with that, I'm gonna have uh, Red introduce himself, tell us about how he grew up wanting to be a receiver when he grew up and <laughs> and everything cool about receiverships. And if anybody has questions, please feel free to ask them in the chat. Uh, Red's here, we don't get this opportunity a lot to ask questions, especially from someone like Red. Um, he works through the courts and also um, this is a two part series. So today we're gonna hear from the receiver. Next week, we'll hear from an actual prosecutor who will talk about the whole process and documentation and how to go about, uh, you know, uh, filing proper paperwork and items like that. But um, today, Red's going to give us an overview on receiverships. That, Red, take it away. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all you uh, out there listening. And and like Pete said, shoot away on questions. Um, I'll, I'll cover any topic you guys want to hear about. Um, but but yes, to the uh, the first aspect of my lifetime aspirations of being a receiver, uh, I think that maybe makes a little more sense uh, in that I love to play football as a kid. But as for receiverships, uh, I don't even think I knew the word. And that was even after I got out of law school. So um, no, this was never on my radar uh, whatsoever. Um, and and so a little, bit of, a little bit of background on me. I am a lawyer in California. I've been a lawyer for about 15 years. And so out of law school, I was just, you know, taking the uh, more common path of general civil litigation, uh, a lot of real estate litigation, a lot of business litigation. Um, and then I, I found myself up in LA uh, involved in a disputed apartment building and the property happened to be in receivership. And I kid you not, that's the first time I'd ever heard the word. Uh, maybe I was sleeping through law school, but I don't remember hearing about that uh, in law school. So uh, long story short, I, I met the receiver that was in control of that building and, you know, it just alarm bells went off in my head that that's it for me. It was a good mix of kind of on the ground, uh, solving problems, always had a, a big interest in real estate, uh, but then coupled with uh, the court's involvement and being comfortable going to court hearings, speaking in front of a judge. And so it was really those two issues, the litigation side. Uh, and then kind of the boots on the ground uh, work to, to fix up properties that from that point forward, that was back in, gosh, probably about 2008. Uh, and since then, kind of opened up my own shop and, and based here in San Diego, California, uh, and, and been doing receiverships uh, ever since. So that's kind of my background. And uh, you guys tell me what you want to hear. I can give kind of the background of California's receivership protocol. Um, like I said, I, I'm open to whatever we want to dive into. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, Red, 
honestly, like I said, I know very little other than the research I've done in the last couple of weeks, especially on you. Um, but I really want to know everything. And I know we only have an hour, um, but I want to know how the process comes together. Um, how do you get involved in uh, creating this process for a municipality? Or um, can you kind of talk about just the, the beginning stages of all of this? So before yeah. we get to that, Ren, can you tell us what a receivership actually is? Just the, the general, what is the term or what, what it is? And then before we get into that, but it, I think it's important because we hear the word. And like you said, you slept through law school. I slept through uh, the code enforcement training because I, you know, so can you tell us what a receivership is and then how, how the whole process works? Absolutely. That's a, and that's a good idea. So, you know, in very general terms, uh, anytime you have two parties fighting about some asset, in court so that you got your plaintiff, you got your defendant, and they could be fighting over a piece of real property. They could be fighting over a business, maybe two partners. In any case, sometimes judges feel it's the most prudent thing to do to put that asset, again, I'll say that piece of real property, into the hands of a receiver who's a third party, unbiased, neutral. That receiver doesn't work for plaintiff, doesn't work for defendant, that receiver works for the court. And the judge is gonna ask a receiver to hold that piece of property or that business in dispute in the hands of the receiver. While these two parties fight it out, it's the receiver's job to take custody of that asset that's being fought over and carry out different steps. We'll get into the details in the context of today's conversation. It is a piece of real property. Typically on one side, the plaintiff is gonna be a municipality in California, it's usually a city, and they're bringing a lawsuit against a property owner, and that property owner owns the subject property that is the asset in dispute, and the city will ask a judge to appoint a receiver, someone like me, to take control of that asset, that nuisance property, that substandard property. And typically the judge will then order its receiver, being me, uh, to carry out certain rehabilitation steps, uh, potentially to vacate a property because of its uh, you know, unsafe and unhealthy conditions, but in a sense, clean up that property in, in the simplest terms. So again, receivership is really a remedy uh, in litigation, in court, where a judge puts some sort of troubled asset into the hands of a third party neutral uh, that is in dispute. I think that that's helpful, Pete. Yeah, it's helpful. And Rachel, if you could repeat your questions, because I totally lost. I was so infatuated with uh, the term. Sorry, and I got super excited. I just wanted to know about it all. Yeah. <laughs> so um, really what I'm looking for is, um, uh, among a million things, is how does the process come together? How do you get involved in all of this? Absolutely. So I'm going to speak to California, but I, but like I said, I'm sure we'll, we'll get down the path where it will be interesting, because I know you guys have a a national audience to kind of talk about how different states approach it. But I think the best way to kind of get it out there and explain uh, how the receivership process works for substandard properties is to talk generally in the context of how California law works. So in California, we have the health and safety code. And within that kind of body of statutes, uh, the health and safety code allows for a city to bring an action against a property owner when that property owner's property has become gotten to the level of substandard nature uh, that it really is a risk to the health and safety of not just the occupant of the subject property, but the surrounding neighbors and the community at large. So, you know, the typical fact pattern goes that uh, it's been a property with, with 
issues, violations, nuisance conditions, potentially hoarding conditions, potentially an abandoned structure. Uh, but like every city has, they have their um, you know toolbox of uh, issuing notices of violation, um, making visits to the property informally, doing formal inspections of the property, uh, issuing potentially fines, liens, penalties. They kind of you know open their toolbox and just unload to try to do something to gain compliance. Now, as we all know, there are those outlier properties where compliance is just not reached. You have an owner who is unwilling, unable, uh, for whatever reason, to cooperate or to achieve compliance. Or maybe they're dead, right? We deal with a lot of abandoned properties where you just simply have a dead owner and they're just floating out in the wind with no responsible party. So cities go to great lengths to try to gain compliance before going to the court system. It makes no sense for anyone. Uh, at any time, really, to get to litigation unless you have to. But if you really do have a property that's causing uh, some real safety hazards for the community, uh, cities do have the option in California uh, to move forward, to file a lawsuit, and ask the judge, recommend to the judge, that a receiver be appointed, someone like me, to then step in upon a court order, upon an appointment order for a receiver to be appointed to take full control of that property, and the, the marching orders for someone like me typically are going to be take full possession and control of the property, not ownership, take possession and control of that property and get that property back into code compliance. Okay. So that's rehabilitate that property, solve whatever violations are, are uh, displaying on that property. So that could be um, a clear out job. It could be uh, addressing mechanical, plumbing, electrical, structural issues, whatever they are, it's my job to put together a rehab plan, come back, get the blessing of the court, proceed with hiring contractors, architects, engineers, whatever it needs to get uh, put together, get the right team together uh, and achieve compliance um, deemed by the city inspectors. And, and one, one thing that, um... You know, I've done receiverships uh, in in my past, and one one of the things that you know we now hold you responsible as the person appointed. You know, so a lot of times we, you know, um, you may not be on site, and you know the homeowner would bring you know all sorts of new litter to the property, which you know tends to happen, and we give you a call say, uh, Mr. Griswold, uh, the home you are um, you are the receiver on now has all this trash. We need you to clean it up. Is that, is this correct? You are Absolutely. now responsible. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tell cities at the outset of these cases, and, and I say this for many reasons, um, I say, you know, once I'm formally appointed as the individual in legal control and possession of this property, I say, cities, fire away. Treat me like you would treat any other owner in your city. So if you see a pile of trash, if you see that my contractor is parking trucks, you know, that are blocking driveways of neighbors, if you see, you know, or hear that I'm doing work on a Sunday and it's too loud for the neighbor, call me out, issue me a notice. I promise you I'm going to jump on it, but I don't, I don't want special treatment. Um, I, I don't deserve special treatment as the person in charge of that property. Uh, so, so I tell cities, yes, I, I am the guy you should be reaching out to. If you're hearing complaints from neighbors uh, about nuisance, nuisance conduct, uh, suspicious behavior, uh, get me on the phone and I'll, I'll put the right people on it. Because again, once that order is signed, uh, 
for better or worse, it's 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 me and my team who who become in uh, legal control of that property. And with that legal control becomes a responsibility. And you know, one of the misconceptions with um, with a lot of these receiverships is that you know, like, oh, the guy works for the city. No, you don't work for the city. You're a court appointed person who's now responsible for this property. And as a responsible appointee, the, uh, me as a code uh, officer or code supervisor will make you responsible to clean up the mess that, you know, that property is causing. Whether, you know, if your contractors left a pile of debris outside and it needs to get cleaned up, you are the point person. I'm going to call you. I'm like, say, here's your notice of violation, Mr. Griswold. Um, there you go. And yeah, and, and you've been very, in my experiences working with you, you've been very uh, respondent to, to any complaint, you know. So I, I appreciate that. And, in, in, you know, I work with many receivers and a lot of times it's kind of hard to get a hold of uh, the contractor or the uh, project manager. Um, but, you know, but your firm is very responsive and I appreciate that about you guys. And that's why we invited you on the show, because you are on top of it and you know that you're responsible and you're willing to take that responsibility on. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks, Pete. And then Rachel had a qu another question. Oh, I have all kinds of questions. Are you kidding? All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really, I mean, I know I understand we're speaking to California, um, but for someone like me down here in Colorado, we don't hear that term a lot. Um, so how does, and I, I know there's a lot more that we want to talk about in the process, but how would I go about bringing something like this up to my municipality? How do you go about showing that there's a need for your services in our community? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it is, uh, it'd be quite the topic to do, um, you know, a, a survey of, of all 50 states and how they address it. So I usually speak very generally to say that each state, you know, in my experience and, and speaking with, you know, code enforcement departments and city attorney offices uh, in many cities across many states is that typically there's some framework there in, in the statutory laws across all 50 states that allow for some level of control over a property when all the other steps taken by a code enforcement division have failed. Now, the, the level of intricacy of, of what steps those are and whether it's that uh, a receiver is going to be appointed or uh, a city has additional measures they can take to, um, you know, a lot of a lot of cities, even in California, get certain abatement orders or they get, uh, you know, authorization to demolish an abandoned property. And those funds might go towards a uh, redevelopment uh, account for that city uh, or some other you know, surplus funding for, you know, uh, affordable housing. Um, but I tell you, I don't have to tell anyone certainly not you two or anyone listening to this right now, that um, there are a lot of creative things going on across all 50 states about addressing substandard housing and how we are going to continue to fund uh, the building or the rehab uh, for affordable housing. So from that, lots of states are, are looking at, at their structures and systems for how they're going to address unsafe housing, substandard housing, hoarding conditions, abandoned properties, so what I would say is, although I'm, I'm an attorney, I'm just a California attorney. So the first thing I would say that you should do or any other uh, individual listening that's, that's interested in, in a state other than California is to sit down with someone in the city attorney's office or the city prosecutor's office um, in your city. Because I can only imagine that there are meetings going on in your city and, and many other cities where you're talking about the same property and the same property owner 
every week, every month, sometimes for years saying, you know, we're banging our head against the wall here. What are we going to do with one, two, three Main Street? Um, so I, I would um, I would ask if the city attorney is, is familiar with what framework and what steps you can take beyond what you've already tried. Uh, and if there is no good answer, uh, I would ask them um, if they're aware of, of any new legislation being pushed uh, statewide, because I know of a whole lot of states that are pushing through new laws currently uh, that address creative ways uh, to address substandard properties. And, and many, I can't speak specifically to Colorado, uh, but many, many, many states uh, have uh, receivership statutes in place. Uh, and on top of that, many, many, many states are underusing the remedy or don't even know that it exists. Uh, and I can say even in California, you know, if you look backwards 10, 15 years, uh, I don't know, and this is just off the top of my head, uh, but I'm going to say low numbers, like maybe 10, 15% of cities were even aware of the remedy. And mm -hmm. even if I stopped time right now, I would say, again, not a calculated answer here, but um, less than 50% of cities use the health and safety receivership remedy on a regular basis. And I'd say 25% have never used it and maybe even never heard of it. So yeah. I encourage uh, folks in, in, in your position and your departments out there uh, to ask questions, uh, press your city attorneys, um, and, and ask them, you know, what, what, what they know of the remedy. Uh, and if they don't know of the remedy, if they're, uh, if they're hearing about any developments in that area. Yeah, absolutely. And just doing some research, I do see that Colorado has Title 66, which speaks to receiverships. Um, but as I stated, I knew nothing about this. You know, going through processes since 2008, um, different municipalities I've worked for have found ways to mitigate and rectify violations through, you know, blighted property rehabilitation codes where you have administrative hearings and then move on to the property to abate it. Um, so hearing of something like this as a long-term um, solution is extremely helpful. So thanks, Red. Of course, of course. And, and Red, one of, the, one of the things that we hear sometimes, and, and this is from coming back from when you said like 10, 15 years ago, you know, the first time we did a receivership, it was like a big deal because everybody's like, oh, it's going to cost too much. It's going to bankrupt the city. And I'm like, you know, and, and it was a tool that I believe this, uh, what city was using it. And we, oh, the city of Paramount used it. And then we ended up saying, hey, that worked for that city because we shared, um, it was what we call a slumlord, you know, was a, a negligent property owner, better word, you know. And, um, and you know the, that person had multiple um, apartment complexes in three different uh, jurisdictions nearby. We pulled our resources together to just tackle it as one big, uh, one big uh, issue. So we ended up uh, my city, that city, and another city ended up uh, kind of joining forces to say, "Hey, look, it's not unique in our city. It's in a multiple city item." And judge, we're requesting a receivership for all this person's properties, and that's the first time I dealt with it. And and at that time, we didn't, you know, even though um, in California, we didn't focus on cost recovery at that time, you know, there was a cost recovery ordinance for uh, legal fees, you know, which is normal in a lot of states, you know, you pay the attorney fees in the losing, right. the, the prevailing party, you know, it gets that way or whatever. They, they, but, um, you know, if one of the important things when going into receivership the documentation for that is so important and people forget you know 
in order to get to a receivership, there's a lot of work to be done beforehand. We just don't give you a property and it's like, hey, it's dilapidated and it's substandard. Here, go get me a receivership. It doesn't work like that. And and that's one of the reasons we decided to have a part two and talk about the the uh, the reporting and and all these mechanisms because at the end of the day, you need to know why it's um, why it's an issue, why it's substandard, why is it a health and safety concern, and your attempts to tell the judge, hey, look, they're unwilling and unable. Well, what's the unwillingness and what's the unableness of, of them, you know, not doing what they're supposed to do to, to um, for this community? Now, when it comes to uh, to receiverships, back to my original statement, people have a misconception that they're too costly or they're too pricey or, you know, can you speak of that uh, on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, again, speaking of California's, uh, you know, legal structure for receiverships. Uh, and specifically with substandard properties and the health and safety receivership remedy is that the simplest way I can put it is that the property pays for the receivership. And, you know, what I mean by that is that uh, once I'm appointed as the receiver, a court typically is going to authorize me to fund what we call a receivership certificate, which is pretty much a promissory note. It's a loan. And I'm able to secure that loan against the subject property. So in a sense, we're taking a loan out against the problem property. And from those funds, we're going to fix up that property and pay for all the receivership costs, insurance costs, utility costs, maintenance costs. So nobody, including a city, is coming out of pocket to pay for these uh, rehabilitation costs and receivership costs. So... Again, so what happens is that's part of my job. Not only do I present to the judge, um, usually within the first 30 days or so of getting appointed, not only am I presenting my rehabilitation plan, which include, you know, bids from licensed contractors, um, maybe security proposals, insurance costs, et cetera. That's kind of what I call kind of the rehabilitation plan. Uh, on top of that, I'm always presenting a, a funding plan that gets reviewed and approved by the judge. And what that's going to describe is, hey, we've got this property. It's obviously substandard. We're already over that hump. It needs to be addressed. Well, okay, but there's a lot of problems. How much is that going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? Okay, well, here's a little profile on the property. Here's what it's worth. Here's what it would be worth once it's fixed up. Here's a third-party lender who's willing to uh, fund the receivership certificate to pay for the rehab. And all of that is presented to the judge. And the judge reviews it, all parties, including the city, including the property owner and their lawyer, if they have one, uh, everyone is involved in that hearing. And then the court will approve that funding plan um, or make adjustments to it. So so the, uh, the idea that people are coming out of pocket to pay for it, including cities specifically, um, you know, that's not how it works. Now, there's another aspect to it regarding um, any hard costs that are put out by a city uh, to get the property uh, into receivership uh, and any attorney's fees they have to pay. And courts have the discretion uh, to determine that those are uh, also part of the receivership costs and can be reimbursed. It's kind of a hot topic that, that maybe you guys might get into um, next week uh, with a, a representative city attorney, um, but courts do have the discretion to also uh, reimburse those costs as well. But as for my job and paying for the actual, you know, hammer and nail aspect of getting these properties cleaned up, uh, those are funded through third party funding, uh, 
logistics through a receivership certificate funding. So it's not oh, out of pocket. That makes sense. And Red, real quick, you kind of touched on abandoned properties versus properties that are lived in. So how does that process differ when you don't have um, necessarily have a responsible party? Or as you said, a lot of times you have these um, these abandoned structures that you have a deceased owner. Um, how does your process differ for something like that? Yeah, definitely. So um, like I said, it happens often when we have an abandoned property, not just abandoned, but like you said, I'll use the example of a, a deceased owner. Okay. So the, the, the health and safety receivership remedy, this is a remedy uh, that is tied to the property. So I'm not taking control of or directing or, you know, untangling issues between individuals, right? I'm not here to determine who owns it. Did it pass down to the daughter, the granddaughter? Um, now, tangentially, those things get brought up and sometimes we get into those issues with a court if they want to. But I like to kind of refocus, you know, my marching orders from the court and that's to fix a property. So therefore, I don't care if it's occupied, unoccupied, occupied by tenants, occupied by an owner or completely abandoned. Um, my focus is what are the code violations of this abandoned property? Uh, can I get a bid put to that those code violations? Can I get it approved by the court? And then I fix that property up, have a follow-up final inspection from the city and make sure it's in a safe and habitable condition. Now, the practical side of all that is that my job always ends up spilling over into untangling who that responsible party is. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, if no one steps forward and no errors are identified, uh, I look to the court again, I only work for the court. I make my recommendation, I report the facts and I ask for further instructions from the court. I'll give a quick example. I just had a hearing yesterday morning uh, regarding a California city and a property where the uh, parents had died with no estate planning, no will, no trust, no, no family member opened a probate after they died close to 15 years ago. Um, but now we're dealing with Oh gosh, seven, eight adult siblings in their 60s and 70s, and they still don't have a plan. Now, since then, we've fixed the property. The family has consented to me selling that property. I'm now holding the sale proceeds from that property in a separate receivership trust account. And the judge has directed me to just hold those funds and wait for the siblings to work out their issues. And so now those siblings are going to open up a probate action and get a formal distinction of who the actual heirs are and who should get that money and in what distribution amounts. So okay. while it's not my main focus, my main focus always is get properties back into safe, habitable condition, code compliance. Uh, as a receiver, we deal with many, many, many uh, odd issues under the sun uh, because we kind of step into these messes uh, and the judge uh, kind of looks at us as, his or her boots on the ground. And we report back whatever we're finding and try to come up with the most equitable, uh, kind of fair um, you know, decisions moving forward. Makes sense. So sure. Red and Pete, I apologize. I could monopolize this entire thing, uh, but we have some really awesome questions from some great guests that we have on. Good morning, all of you. Um, so Cecilia asked Red, can you speak on receiverships on properties with HUD interests um, slash second interests and what that means for a city and a jurisdiction? Yeah, and sure. Um, oh, sorry. sorry. And she, she followed up real quick with in reference to costs. Oh, in reference to costs. Okay. And hi, Cecilia. How are you? Um, 
So I'm guessing what she's talking when she says HUD interest, um, potentially we're talking about uh, some sort of um, government lien interest. Um, I'll, I'll take a step back because I think it's important to know. Uh, when I just explained that, at least in California, uh, courts authorized me as the receiver to take out you know, private funding, a new private loan against the property to pay for the receivership costs. What it also allows for, which is um, a very powerful uh, aspect of the health and safety law, is that this funding that I'm able to obtain through court-ordered funding, it's called, it's called super priority funding. What that means is the, the priority position uh, as, a, as a loan on the property, it steps in front of prior private loans. So again, if, if Ms. Smith owns 123 Main Street and she has a mortgage with Wells Fargo and she's had that in place for 10 years, uh, if her property ends up in health and safety receivership and I need to borrow money against the property to pay for the costs, this receivership certificate loan is going to jump in front of that Wells Fargo loan, even though that Wells Fargo loan has been in place for 10 years. So that type of priority funding obviously allows uh, for the aspect of funding to be a lot more smoother, uh, a lot more available uh, funds from private lenders because they know they're going to have a, a priority position to get this property back in a safe condition. The exception to this is that receivership funding will not step in front of any government liens. So typically what that's going to mean is uh, delinquent property taxes with the county, it's going to mean um, IRS tax liens, um, state tax liens in California, that'd be franchise tax board. So to, to go back to Cecilia's question, if it's simply just a, a private lien, again, I'll use the Wells Fargo example, um, there's no concern uh, from a receivership funding perspective because uh, courts have the wide discretion to order that the receivership funding is going to jump in front of that private lien. However, she mentions uh, a HUD interest. If that HUD interest, um, if we're referring to something in the realm of a, a government lien, uh, a public lien against the property, um, typically that's going to be a little bit more complicated. And you're going to have to kind of assess whether or not there's still enough equity in the property to get receivership funding to pay for it. Um, I will also say that at the outset of receiverships, there are many public agencies, and I'm going to throw in you know, the county treasurer's office, uh, the IRS, the franchise tax board, there are reasonable uh, folks in those offices that sometimes I reach out directly to them. I say, look, I just got appointed on a nuisance property that's a complete safety hazard to the community and the children living in that neighborhood. This needs to be addressed. I've been ordered by a superior court to fix this property for the benefit of everyone. Uh, but hey, you know, what's standing in between that happening is the existence of your $500,000, you know, 20 year old federal tax lien. Uh, and sometimes they say, I get it. And we'll come to some formal agreement as to them kind of stepping aside a bit to allow for that funding to take place and maybe even step in front of their federal tax lien because they also share in the benefit of, hey, you know, if that's the asset that we're securing this big lien against, we'd like to see it cleaned up uh, as well. So um, that's a really long answer, but there is some play there between private and public liens, uh, the access or availability to receivership funding. 
uh, but then also just some kind of reasonable, practical solutions that when you just kind of get on the phone and, and talk to somebody about the issues at, at play. Sure, sure. And, and you did have a, a couple additional questions. Uh, this one, I'm going to put them up on the screen real quick. Uh, this one, this is a two-part. How about a property that has been used by squatters after an owner has died? Yeah, great question. Happens all the time. Um, so, you know, when, when I'm appointed, uh, the first thing we typically do, and we try to do it within a day or two of being appointed, is we schedule an initial inspection of that property. And typically what we do is we invite everybody. I don't, yeah, I, I use that term loosely, but when I say everybody, I want the code enforcement inspector that's been on that file. I want the building inspector that's been on that file. I want uh, potentially... Um, uh, anyone else of the city, be it from uh, fire, be it from animal control, whatever issues have been at play at this property, I want everyone there on site so we can all take a look at this property in real time and know what I'm dealing with when I get on, on site and now I'm in legal control of that property. I'm also going to have at least one, if not two, licensed contractors so that we're all looking at the same thing and putting together bids to line up with the existing current conditions of that property that need to be addressed. Now, Again, that's very property focused, very, you know, building condition focused. I'm, but I'm not ignoring the fact that uh, there's always a, a, a people problem as well. So when we address um, what we'll call them, you know, squatters, maybe uh, unauthorized folks that are on site, I need to, I take a fresh look at this. So I, I need to wade through who are you, what legal right do you claim to have to be on site at this property? Because also in California, the health and safety receivership has, uh, has the right uh, and allows the right for someone like a receiver to offer relocation uh, mm -hmm. reimbursement or real relocation expense uh, to, to occupants of a substandard property. Now, the law, I think smartly, distinguishes between who can get relocation assistance. Obviously, if you have a family renting a, a, a apartment unit uh, and you have a negligent landlord who's um, running this property negligently and they're subject to unsafe conditions, that is your prime candidate. That family in that apartment unit needs that relocation assistance and deserves that relocation assistance to temporarily relocate in safe housing while we get that property cleaned up. Now, different example, I've come across an abandoned property where folks have obviously trespassed. Um, uh, I'll just use a, a fact pattern that we see a lot. Uh, there could be fires being started inside. There could be criminal activity inside. Um, those folks are not going to get relocation assistance. They're not going to get a check from me uh, to move along. Um, we may have to have uh, police involved uh, to investigate the situation, understand um, what's going on at the property. But one way or the other, if the property is deemed unsafe, unsafe means unsafe. Whether you're a squatter, a two-year-old, a grandmother, an owner, a tenant, if it's not habitable, if it's not safe, uh, then no one's going to be inside that property. And a receiver has real wide discretion um, from you know the, the power of the court uh, to take steps to remove any occupant, authorized or unauthorized, if they need to be removed uh, due to health and safety considerations. And one, one of the things, Red, that, um, you know, uh, we, since we, a lot of times as cities initiate the receiverships, you know, we do coordinate once the receiver is appointed, 
uh, we do coordinate and say, hey, um, you tell us, hey, we're going to be on a property on this date, you know, and a lot of times you you like some, you know, uh, you know, we find other issues like, hey, like this paint, it's suspect lead paint. And we focus on those uh, particular issues that maybe weren't. So you have to do what you have to do to give back to the court and, you know, and petition more. But also the other portion is sometimes we as city officials know the danger in some of these vacant buildings. So we would coordinate with the receiver, whoever's on, on site and have the police clear the, the structure beforehand. Because a lot of times you do get those individuals that are going through um, psychotic drug episodes or they're violent or they just you, you're now you know now you're not there you're now trespassing on their trespass <laughs> so yeah so you know one of the things is that we do try to coordinate a lot with the police department to make sure that you're safe because you as an appointee you're there to clean up the property and that's the ultimate goal of the city is why we initiated that action so we we try to do the best we can to assist right you know and, and a lot of times in in the appointment order uh you know signed by the judge that that appoints me as the you know being in legal control of a property um i'm thankful for that most times there there is a provision in that appointment order that says um uh, that i can utilize the assistance of, of local law enforcement to in a sense really keep the peace during our inspections uh or whatever we need to do to carry out the court's orders and that's really what it ends up being um just you know police presence alone um and for the safety of the inspectors for the safety of myself and my team um really just to make sure that everyone stays on task and and addresses what really the reason we're there for is that's just cleaning up the property and, and any conditions or or you know uh angry or unstable folks that might be on site um, they're simply there to make sure that 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 uh, everyone is safe and able to do their jobs, and, and that has been very helpful in in many, frankly, extreme situations that we've that we faced. Wonderful. And a follow up question from Miss Anna is: Can a property be vacated under receivership during the COVID eviction stay? Yeah, that's a super good question. Um, and so we we're, we discuss it, uh, man, in several hearings, as you can imagine, uh, over the last eighteen months. Um, and so the big distinction here is, is that if a receiver takes control of a property and let's say the property is red tagged and, and no one can live in that property safely, um, when, a, when, when I am vacating a property, I am not filing an unlawful detainer uh, lawsuit uh, or an eviction. Um, and so e eviction moratoriums uh, were put in place for, for very good reasons um, during uh, during the COVID pandemic, here what we're dealing with typically is I'm faced with a situation where this property is so drastically unsafe, unhealthy, and hazardous to anyone living near it and certainly inside of it is that you're kind of weighing two negatives here. And judges, uh, judges can recognize this and make the equitable decision to order that a property be vacated. So this is, this is not your typical unlawful detainer situation where uh, a family is unable to make rent on their apartment unit. Hey, let's put a pause here. Let's make sure everyone's safe and sheltered during this pandemic um, and, and you know economic slowdown. This is a situation where I'm taking over what's been deemed by law a nuisance, substandard, dangerous property. So um, through, through the receivership body of laws, not the unlawful detainer body of laws, um, a receiver is able to uh, vacate, many times relocate 
occupants of a property, um, you know, during the COVID pandemic. And, and I make that distinction to say, certainly when we're dealing with um, an owner occupied uh, property, I mean, technically, you know, they own the place, right? It's not a, a tenant uh, who has failed to pay rent. Um, and so typically what we're doing is we're simply explaining to the court that it's unsafe for that occupant to be living in there. Um, but also at the same time presenting that, hey, we're providing um, whatever the number is, $7,500 uh, in the form of uh, hotel stays or alternative housing stays, whatever's most appropriate for that individual. So no one's going out to the streets um, while we do work on a, a receivership property. Makes sense. Makes sense. So you, you, you have another, oh, you had another question, Red. So go ahead, Rachel. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. By all means. So again, another awesome question from Miss Cece. Um, how would one maneuver an HECMS home equity conversion mortgage held mortgage held by a HUD? Oh, so Cecile, I'm getting the sense you've got a very particular issue on your hands, <laughs> and I'm happy to, to talk to you afterwards as well. Um, so, um, again, I would look at that as a, uh, a lien on the property. Okay. And then if we're going to distinguish between when you say held by HUD, um, does it rise to the level that it's going to be deemed a government lien or is it simply a private lien that is sometimes backed by, um, HUD, um, or some other, you know, federal agency, um, to be honest, at the outset, what I usually do is I, I take kind of the prudent, uh, safe approach, and and I would say, well, if I'm seeing involvement by HUD, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna treat it as a you know federal government lien that my funding is not gonna jump into. So my first question is gonna be, what's this property worth? What's this property worth when it's cleaned up? What is the current balance, uh, outstanding balance on this uh, equity conversion mortgage? And is there still room, even if that's considered an untouchable government lien, is there still room for the appropriate amount of receivership funding to get this property into a safe condition? So many times the math is, well, I'll say we all know, um, even though we're in COVID and an economic, you know, potentially some folks would call it a slowdown. Somehow California um, real estate is out of control. So what we continue to see is that uh, even if there are government liens that, that can't be touched, um, there's still a whole lot of equity uh, that would allow for court-ordered funding uh, to get the property into a safe condition. But Cecilia, I'm more than happy to talk to you uh, later today to, to kind of give you some more thoughts if, if we can take a look at that lien. And you do have some uh, fans coming in red, so just FYI. Oh, wow. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm actually a fan. You know, and, and it's funny, it's even funnier when I see uh, work that we've done it up in the news because, you know, somebody, <laughs> um, you know, there's, a, you know, you, you'll see like a case where, you know, the homeowner will go to plea to the media saying, hey, you know, they're treating me unfairly, da, 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 da. And, you know, but end of the day, you know, you, we get a lot of thank yous when you're done with the properties and they're cleaned up. I mean, your um, pictures that I've seen and that I've taken uh, the work with you, you it's a, always a great before and after. Uh, after, And I, I'm pretty sure uh, on your website, do you have those type of um, examples? We do. I mean, we're, we're fortunate that the work we do is uh, can really be told in some dramatic, uh, dramatic scenery. So lots of before after photos, 
Um, so we don't have to talk as much about it. We can, you know, just, just show it through photos because, um, pretty drastic, drastic situations that, uh, need to need to be addressed for, for a myriad of safety reasons. So, so yes, no, and thank you, Pete. I appreciate that. Oh, I'm, I'm seeing another question. Uh, from Anna about is is receivership only used for building code violations uh, are properties with severe garbage and debris uh, junk portable buildings eligible for the receivership process um, so first part of the question receivership only for building code violations no it is not it would encompass those conditions that you just addressed which maybe the catch-all phrase would be kind of nuisance conditions um, the best example I would use is that uh, we, we deal with a lot of hoarding properties and, you know, a collection of uh, personal property, materials, debris, trash, however you want to describe it, um, by nature, maybe wouldn't be your traditional building code violation. We're not talking about unpermitted work. We're not talking about, you know, uh, over, you know, work in the electrical grid. Uh, we're simply just talking about stuff, some could call it. Now, but an accumulation of debris leads to other issues that might be fire code violations, right? We get into ingress, uh, egress, you know, lack of emergency um, evacuation of a property. Um, I deal a lot with um, backyard issues that could be um, encampments of, of folks. This is kind of in the abandoned property world, running extension cords from neighboring properties, um, a lack of... Um, utilization of sewage systems that's a over technical word for uh a big mess uh inside and outside the yard um and so so no nuisance conditions you know the word nuisance uh is is used uh very clearly at least in california's health and safety law that that says hey the the existence of nuisance conditions rises to the level um in many situations of being deemed a substandard property um on top of that, you know, it, it goes to sometimes activity, whether that be criminal activity going on uh, on on a real piece of real property that certainly would, at the very least, uh, rise the level of being a nuisance um, and, and even further to a danger situation, depending on what type of criminal activity we're talking about. So so no, it's not just, um, you know, plumbing, electrical, structural issues. Um, it's it's kind of the catch all of nuisance conditions. Uh, over depending on where you are and what time of the year it is, as we all know, um, other you know fire risks, uh, overgrown vegetation, anything that that potentially catch fire to one house or multiple houses uh, is going to be certainly looked at very closely, uh, especially here in California and, and gosh across the West right now. Great information, Red. Great information. So uh, Rachel, you had a whole list of questions and additional questions. Do you have a, do you have more? No, really um, what I get from all of this and what I hear from listening to you read is um, the collaboration, the process that, that excites me. Um, you work together with local municipalities and all of the different factors that play a role in bringing that property into compliance and, and your overall goal is compliance. So I'm just so surprised I haven't heard of this process before. Um, I love it. I, if we all have that overall goal of compliance and working together, it's just magical and like you said, your before and after pictures really say it all. So great work you guys are doing out there. 
No, I appreciate it, Rachel. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, and, and you know, and I, I see that you, you know, you taught at ACE. I think I, I, I don't know if you're teaching this year at ACE, but I know uh, you taught in the past, and it's it's always a great topic because it's a little known tool and it's a very effective tool. And it's one that, you know, I tell folks, you know, if you're going to use it, make sure you're using it the right way, you know. And and for, you know, I've worked with several receivership uh, firms and, you know, after they get appointed by the court, because we don't really don't have to say who's getting appointed. Like, I know they, the, the court appoints you. You know, we don't appoint you. The court appoints you. And, right. you know, and, and working with a lot of them, I love your responsiveness. Um, you know, the first time I believe I met you was I found, I saw you on LinkedIn and I was like, wow look at this guy and then i ended up taking a trip to san diego and i think that's where we we ended up um hooking right, up right then i had you do a, a small tour of training for other folks and you know because right. you know spreading the word of tools out there that people may not know whether it's in california like i'm in oregon right now that's this is the hotel room behind me and you know right. so but um to me, it's it's so important looking at the code here in Oregon. I realize how different it is from California, and you know, and having Rachel in Colorado, you know, not hearing of this, it's to me, it's like we all need some sort of knowledge of everybody else's tools because that may be something we may want to push in our states right. and say, hey, right. this is an important tool, and you know, um, a lot of folks always exhaust their their um, their tool belts to their, you know, as much as they know, but if there's other tools out there that they may uh, use, this is, you know, this is awesome. And having the courts involved, um, you know, sometimes it's beneficial. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, and it is, I mean, it's, it's your rare occurrences, but um, as all of you know, and, and I recognize a lot of the names um, submitting questions is that it, it's that small percentage of, of properties uh, that are, files on your desk that end up taking up so much time. And when there's no, you know, light at the end of the tunnel as to how that property is ever going to be addressed and, and obtain compliance. Um, it's, it's that kind of situation where the receivership remedy can really step in uh, and finally address the situation. So um, I completely 100% agree with you, Pete, that uh, sharing information, sharing the different approaches between different municipalities and different states um, is super important right now um, and is really, really going to be beneficial because these issues of sub-centered housing, hoarding, uh, unstable conditions and multi-unit stuff such as apartment buildings, um, these problems aren't going away and cities need all the resources uh, that are available to them to address these in a safe and humane way. Yeah. So Red, I do have one last follow-up question. Sure. So really what I would I'm looking for is how long does this process take? So you know, in a lot of what we do, we have reporting parties that we have to get back to or we have superiors that we have to update on processes and extensions that were provided. Um I understand just like with everything else that we do, everything is case by case, but what kind of process? What does that look like? How long does it really take? Um, from start to finish to see compliance or see beautification? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I always start by saying the work itself is not the part that takes a long time, right? The reality of this is that once this property rises to the level where a municipality has to take the step of filing a lawsuit against the property owner, you're, you, the city, as well as the property owner, as well as the receiver, 
we're now all subject to that court and that judge's calendar. And because I'm a court appointed officer, anything I do in the sense of proceeding with the rehabilitation project or proceeding with the funding plan, uh, I have to work with the courts to get in front of that court, have a hearing, get the court order signed and move forward. So if there are delays, there's usually in the world of kind of administrative delays. Um, but I'll say this, because we're dealing with properties that are at that high risk level, what typically happens is, like I said, once the city has worked up the case, I know you guys will go through that. Sounds like uh, next week's um, podcast. Um, but once I'm appointed within the first 24, 48 hours, we're there, we're on site, we're in legal control of the property. So from the custodial nature of it, uh, it's an immediacy once that appointment order is signed that I'm in control of that property. And typically within the first 30 days, we're back in front of the judge to present our, uh, our, our bids from contractors to address the work. And assuming you get approval from the judge to move forward, that work's going to start right away. And now you're just talking about different properties, right? If it's a clear out property um, with, you know, hoarding conditions, or it's a, you know, rehab of a 50 unit you know, apartment building, just construction side of things, there's going to be, you know, different timeframes for those types of projects. But once you then get code compliance, you get your final sign offs from all appropriate city inspectors, uh, then the process can slow down again. And I think for good reason. And, and what I mean by that is that I consider then you move into kind of phase two, what is the exit plan for the property owner? And I give great deference to owners at the end of these receiverships once the work is done, because like I said, I don't own the property. They do. It's their property. They may have owned it for decades or a lifetime being passed on from um, maybe their parents. And so judges uh, and, and me as the receiver, we like to give owners um, all the leeway to kind of maybe huddle with their own family members, decide what they want to do next. Do they want to um, keep the property and continue to have that same you know owner live there? Uh, do they want to you know do some refinancing or other financial planning uh, related to the property? Um, sometimes owners and their families come to me and go, yikes, this has really shown us that, that maybe grandma shouldn't be living in the five bedroom apartment all by herself with a big old yard to maintain. And, and, and so now we'd like to actually market the property for sale and move grandma closer to us in Cleveland, whatever it may be. All that stuff takes time and judges and myself are always willing to give that time. So if we're looking at really when the case closes, um, could be several months or close to a year. Okay. But the actual um, act of having a receiver step in, take control, make decisions about the property and have court ordered supervision, that's immediate. Okay. And then getting the actual code compliant work done, that happens at the front end of the receivership. And I always kind of say, now the city's concerns and the community's concerns, those are solved. Now, dealing with maybe financial side of things, um, what the owner's wishes are into the future, mm -hmm. I have a less involved role, but the receivership matter is still open and we're still having hearings with the judge to kind of see how we're going to wrap this up. So I hope that kind of answers the question, but I always kind of think it's kind of two parts to it. It's getting the work done uh, and then it's working with the owner as to how they see kind of the future playing out. Makes sense. Makes sense.
And, and, and this normally can go hours because, you know, we sat in a room and you explained receiverships. There's so many complexities. And, you know, one hour is not a lot, of, but it gives us a basic idea of, of the work that you do. And it's very appreciated that you came on today. You know, and we did have another question is if somebody wants to get a hold of you, what is your contact information? What's the best way to reach you, Red? Oh, uh, sure. I would probably say, you know, just going to our website uh, and that's www.griswoldlawca.com. So that's G-R-I-S-W-O-L-D-L-A-W-C-A.com. And that has all our contact info, email addresses, office number, all of that there. So it's griswoldlawca.com? That's it. Okay, let me put it here so folks can uh, see it on the screen. Oops. Hopefully I got it right. Well, G-R-I-S. G -R -I -S. Oh, great. yes. yes. My spelling, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> right. let, me, let me give it another try. Um, okay, but we appreciate you coming on today. Yeah. Let me see, Griswold Law. Sorry, I monopolized all your time there, sir. It's great oh. information. No, I'm always happy to talk about it. And yeah, anyone that wants to reach out to me privately or separately to talk about uh, receivership remedy, I'm, I'm always uh, I'm always available. Thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you. We do see you're active on LinkedIn. You know, this is one of our platforms that we show the stream on, you know, and, and we love the stuff that you put out. It's a lot of good uh, stories that you that you work with, you know, and, and we appreciate it because us as code enforcement officers, we know how much work it takes to get some of these properties into compliance, especially the ones that you've been dealing with 5, 10, 15, 20 years with. And to finally get a resolution, you know, by bringing somebody like yourself on board, it, it just, you know, the neighborhood kind of relieves in size. I'm like, oh, I can finally invite my family members over. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this, it's certainly not boring work. So, cool. By no means. Yeah. Well, thank you, Red, and we hope everybody learned something. And you know, and we appreciate you again, Red, for coming on here and and talking to Rachel and I. So uh, it's been fun. Thank you both for having me. Thanks, Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for another episode of Code Concepts with Rachel and Pete. And thank you to all of our awesome viewers and your wonderful questions. This was just such a fantastic topic today. Have a wonderful day. All right. Bye.